0: Three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of the Stoned Apes podcast, and it is the Reverend and the Captain, and we are back to the basics with another solo episode. How are you doing, sir? Good, brother.
1: What a do, nephew. Not too bad. Not too bad. So, what have you been up to, man? Man, it... prepping for baby. That's that's been our life. You know, we had the wedding, and now it's just prepare for number three to arrive. And it could, I could literally get a phone call right now mama megan is ready to go she's get this fucking thing out of me <laughs>
0: hey, Man, i'm so excited for you brother i'm, I'm pumped man you so know I this would be kid number three third and done this third and it. done and this one's going to be a boy because you were girl heavy in your fucking house
1: there is way too much estrogen in my house i have two daughters i have a wife i have a male cat but he's neutered so he don't fucking count <laughs> i'm extremely outnumbered so are you i know oh i lost that when i got married uh, <laughs> <laughs> man, it's
0: been a wild ride the last couple of weeks You know, we said that last time when we had a solo episode But these are nice It only gets deeper It, it just, Man, the guest list just keeps piling up And we got so much stuff going on I was uh, sitting here this morning and I got a phone call from Epen, And apparently he's driving in And uh, he's got all this stuff going on at like Washington University this week They're doing a big psychedelic conference and all this other stuff So I'm going to be That's out cool. there later this week doing that And it's just like, well, I didn't have anything planned this week, but now I do. Here we go. So, yeah, we got the wedding this weekend. I'm going up to uh, Michigan, my good friend Nick. Shout out to you, Nick, and congratulations on your wedding. We're going up to South Haven, Michigan, and we're going to hang out up there for the weekend. I
1: bet the weather is beautiful there right now.
0: Dude, you know, for those that don't know, Michigan is one of the best-kept secrets as far as vacation spots we used to do like everybody else we did the florida vacation during the summer and it was like oh we go to florida one week every summer fuck that we went to michigan once and it was kind of funny because this story really highlights like michelle and i a hundred thousand percent because we're just so on the whim we had this uh crazy hair up our ass one day we were like we're gonna go to holland michigan You know, it's supposed to be this Dutch recreation town and they have all this stuff going on. And so, you know, the wood shoes and you name it. And so we uh, girls just
1: walk around on clogs up there or,
0: (laughs) you know, well, that's that's what we were thinking. Right. We were thinking that this is what Holland was going to be like. And so we decide to we wake up one day and it's like on a Thursday and we're like, we're going to go to Holland tomorrow. And so we do our day on Friday. You know, we're both working and we get off. We don't leave until like six or seven in the evening. We drive to holland michigan now mind you with no idea where we're going we just know that we're going to holland we show up there at like two three o'clock in the morning and then originally we have the forerunner and so and normally we just sleep inside the forerunner because we get the bed system it's all set up for overland and camping so uh we just figured we would just camp right we'd parking lot camp or do whatever we wanted until we figured out where we wanted to be there was going to be probably blm land or something that we could do and so we get up there at like two three o'clock in the morning and we discover when we get there that they have a, a no sleeping in cars policy of course they do. and i'm like "Fuck us so we're driving all around you see intent those windows bro dude we're, <laughs> we're driving all around trying to figure out like where we're gonna fucking stay for the night you know what we're gonna do and how we're gonna make this work and uh so we're driving down next to the lake and uh they had this campground and i pull in to go check into the campground And, uh, there's no attendant or anybody there. So we just drive in, we find an empty spot and I figured we'll just camp for the night. I'll wake up in the morning, go pay the guy, be done with it. You know, we get this wonderful little spot out there. Uh, we stay there. We slept, we woke up the next day and it was like, oh man, this is really nice. Why don't we go do this? Well, we go over to the attendant he's like, no, we're booked full. And I was like, well, there was empty spots like all over the place. You know, I was like, there has to be one of these spots that you can just rent us for the weekend. He's like, no, 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 no. We're booked full. You know and so i tell him it's like well can we at least pay for last night he's like don't worry about it that was already a reserved spot whoever it was just didn't show up and so i was like okay cool so we leave and then uh we find another campground called cal haven campground which is uh, the cal haven outpost it's fucking amazing these uh this young couple had uh they They were our age, you know, 30s, 40 years old, and uh, they had inherited some land from their family and they decided they were going to build an RV campground out there. But they're tent campers. So this is one of the best campgrounds that I've ever found for like tent camping or isolated camping. They have in the woods spots to where you drive a few hundred yards, you're in the woods. It's super secluded. It's amazing. You're not. It's not like you're at a campground at all. But the best part is, is a few hundred ro- yards at the end of the road, you got all of the stuff that you would want at like an RV park. So, like the showers are right across. All from. the amenities. All the amenities. It's fucking amazing. That's cool. And so, we stayed there, and then we discovered that area. And this is where my friend Nick lives. He lives in South Haven. Well, South Haven, Saugatuck, and uh, Howland are all within uh basically 20 minutes of each other and so you can go to any one of these towns and there's another town there that I can't think of the name of off the top of my head but every single one of these towns are very unique they're not like each other they're completely different tourist destinations so you could travel up to Saugatuck Saugatuck is going to be like your shopping experience it's got this uh town of shops like boutiques and just neat little stuff like you would find in like a coastal town and it's right there on the water so they have all the restaurants on the water where you can sit on the water and you can eat your meal and do whatever you want it's a little bit more upscale really nice place you can go down for the day spend the whole day there it's fucking fantastic you go up to holland holland is a big city by the way there is it's not a dutch city. Uh apparently the experience that we were looking for is in a town called Frankenmuth which is about 3 hours north of there which I'm going to end up you ex- will told me about that. And so I was like, "Well, thank you, Will. I'm going to have to go check that out because <laughs> they have like the german buildings. What Holland has is Holland has a dutch reenactment town like a theme park and they do a tulip festival and all this stuff there which i have heard is fantastic we haven't been there Uh, the locals say that you actually need to show up about one or two weeks before the festival because the tulips are in full bloom but you don't get all the crowd and then it's worth going to and uh then south haven is this this little quaint beach town right on lake michigan And it's got a few things and some bars and restaurants and stuff, but it's amazing. And then when you're out in the South Haven area, it's all farmland. So, you know, you're going to Eckert's. You go pick your own apples, right? But imagine a place where there was like 20 Eckert's. And they're everywhere. Like as you drive, it's like, oh, this is a blueberry farm. This is an apple farm. This is an orange farm. This is wine, whatever you want, you know, vineyards and all this stuff. So you could go up there for the weekend, have one weekend where all you do is just go to these other, these little farms and pick your own food and fruit and whatever you want to do. (laughs) And then that would be perfectly good. You could have a weekend where you go up there, you go to Saga Talk and you just take in Saga Talk because these places are big enough to take it all in. It would take... A weekend and then intermixed in between these two are a uh, several other little small towns that all have their own different feel you know whether you want to go to like small plate restaurants or things they have this uh large the one town that i cannot think of the name of is like a um it's a lgbtq friendly community and they have art galleries and they have small plate restaurants and gastro pubs and all of this neat, eclectic shit that you like, you know, right. really cool vibe. And then, of course, Michigan is all rec legal, you know, so you got weed shops everywhere that you can go and hang out at. And so we just started going there because it's like, man, you we could go there every weekend for years. And not experience everything that's within these four or five little towns and then that's where i almost died on that hike i went to the Saugatok dunes (laughs) and uh one step in front of the other yeah they have the they have the dunes out there which they have multiple hiking trails you know you can a hundred yard walk to the beach if you want to or you could do like we did and do the long trip or whatever but uh you get out there and that's the the first time that we were out there we uh we went down to the late we walked the dunes uh we ended up doing like a one or a two mile trek and then we got to this space on the beach where uh behind us was like this 200 foot dune and then it came down to the beach and then the beach was just dead i mean we're talking middle of summer it was like june or july no one michelle and i laid down with the dog and we ended up taking like a two hour nap on the beach not one human walked by while we were there middle of peak tourist season Nothing. Happy Not damn just the beach to yourself right on Lake Michigan. And then you go up to uh, Holland and then you go down to, uh, and I can't think of the name of that place either right now, but the, they you go to the North Holland and the, it goes down to this pier and they have a lighthouse down there and the lighthouse is right on Lake Michigan. And then they got, you know, a different town there. Again, more of like a touristy beach town, but this is where most of the boating and the docks and all that stuff are at. And so the weather though is the best part. Because in the middle of July, it's 80 degrees during the day, and it's 65 at night. Hmm. So your weather is fucking perfect. You put on shorts, a t-shirt, grab a hoodie, you're good. All day, you sleep, it's nice and cool, you don't have to sweat to death. There's no mosquitoes, there's no bugs. It's the best kept vacation spot in the United States, in my opinion. Like, damn. It is my favorite during the summers, as soon as it gets hot, we go north. And then what we try to do now is during the winter as we go south. We try to get to the heat. And then we do the uh, we do the desert in spring and fall because fuck being in the desert in the middle of the summer and the desert's cold as shit in the winter. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm naturally insulated so I got to worry about that shit. Oh my god, man. We <laughs> the few times that we've been out in the desert like uh, last year we decided to do that one trip and it was a uh, middle of November. And so we were heading out to vegas and so we hit the uh, mojave we went down to the mojave national forest and then we went all through new mexico and then went up into california and then we ended up going to ojai up in california staying up in the mountains we came out of that then we went back to vegas so i did the convention in vegas because you know we all have to work and then uh tore up vegas for a few days and then we ended up in moab and then from Moab, we went up to Colorado Springs and hit a few spots over there. Went to Garden of the Gods and a few of those things and Pikes Peak. And then uh, we came back. But uh, when we, on the way out, we went to the uh, Grand Canyon for the first time. I'd never been. Michelle had been, but I hadn't. So we pull up to the Grand Canyon and we get there. Like you know, We do all our traveling at night. I think my previous part of the story kind of let you in on that. Mm-hmm. So we, we show up there like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we park in this visitor parking lot, and then we just decide to go to sleep. And we wake up, and there's an inch of snow in the ground. And I'm like, are you shitting me? I am in the middle of the fucking Grand Canyon desert, and it's snowing. And so we wake up, we get changed, and we get ready and everything. And then we start driving down the path, and nobody is around. No one. It's just us, the forerunner, fresh blanket of snow. We're driving through the Grand Canyon and then we pull up to the side of the the little viewpoints, right? And we're at this one viewpoint and the snow is blowing upward. It's coming out of the canyon instead of snow falling down, it's blowing up and it's coming up over us. That's cool. And it's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. So like my experience of the Grand Canyon was just amazing. It was and it was a warm snow it wasn't really that cold it was like in the mid-30s or you know right just enough to be snowing right so it had that thick heavy snow but it was still kind of warm and so yeah we're just we're hanging out of the grand canyon with the snow fucking falling in the middle of a snowstorm watching the snow come out over the canyon glorious but as overlanders like this is cold you know, we had the uh, we we did that uh, roll insulation for the windows. I don't know if you've seen what we did there, but we cut uh, you know the same insulation you put around HVAC. Mm-hmm. We custom cut those of the windows and then we layered them with felt fabric so that they pop in. And then uh, so when before we go to bed at night. We'll pop in the insulated windows, and then we'll turn the heat on, get it smoking hot, let it idle for a little bit, get so hot you can't stand it. We'll shut it off, and then that'll hold. So when you wake up in the morning, it, you know, it's 30 degrees warmer than it is outside. Right. The problem is, is you got to open the doors at some point. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, the cold is a real thing. When we ended up in the Mojave, we decided to do a... We are in the Mojave National Forest, you know, middle of November, and it wasn't snowing, but holy shit, was it cold? We had, like, a 30-mile-an-hour wind coming through, and, you know, Michelle and I are sitting out there because we're like, fuck this, you know? We're going to enjoy this, and so we've got blankets. We're all wrapped up.
1: <laughs> I'm in my fucking
0: Sherpa. I'm completely
1: miserable, but You're, I'm going to enjoy this.
0: I'm in Sherpa everything. I've got my Uggs on, like, you know, fucking fully done in uh. And it's so fucking cold, like we're just freezing to death. And so I was like, you know, weed and mushroom sounds like a good idea right now. I bet you look really cute with your boots on. Oh, dude, I look <laughs> sexy as fuck. Like, I don't play around, man. Not not when it comes to camping. You like, can when, hang those boots like to my cough bag. Okay. When when we get out there for camping, it's like you learn, and I learned a lot from her. So she's originally from Canada, so she grew up in British Columbia and uh she lived out there in vancouver like a just outside of vancouver similar to like what we do with st louis uh, in a suburbed area but on an island and stuff like that and so she grew up in the water she grew up in canada she grew up with the cold then she moved all around the united states after that but then ended up settling in colorado springs and uh so she has always lived in diverse environments where cold and constant change so she taught me a lot about layering And, and When I was in the army, they always said, well, you need to layer, you know, I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't know how to layer. I didn't know how the different types of material work with each other, how to properly insulate, what the importance of like air gapping is, what materials need to be breathable, which ones don't. And so I never really understood how to stay warm. I wish I had this information when I was back in the fucking military because I would have been exponentially warmer like 90% of the time, especially stationed at Fort Riley. Um, But now I do. So when we come out and we go layer, man, it's helped with everything from like hunting. You know, I layer the same way when I go hunting. And uh, yeah, I don't get cold anymore. Hmm. Like cold is not a thing. Like when you understand the materials and how to create your base layers and how to create your air gaps and what external, what extra material you need on the outside. That's why we do the Sherpa. The because So I'll layer like polypropylene layers or things like that at the base because they're breathable. You don't want your sweat to get on you. So if you sweat, you need wool or something to pull it away. So wool, polypropylene materials like that will pull that away. And then you use your Sherpa layer, which is won't let the heat out. It's this giant insulative barrier that essentially won't let heat escape. But there's an air gap. So you, you, if you're wearing wool or polypropylene, if you do sweat, it pulls the moisture from your skin, puts it outside of that layer. And so between that layer and your external layers where all your moisture is at, which moisture is condensation, condensation is humidity, which means it stays even warmer. And then you have that air gap between that and the external material. And so you don't end up getting that cold. It you stay warm. It just works so much better. So to all the people out there that are like, fuck Sherpa, you have no idea. You don't use it.
1: (laughs) Effectively, at least.
0: Effectively. Yeah, because if you if you learn to use it effectively, you know, if you just wore that, if you were to say I wouldn't put on a Sherpa hoodie, you're gonna sweat to death. It's gonna be terrible. But if you use it with the proper base layers and you you outfit yourself correctly, then you can get into cold environments. you know we've been out in the desert 15 16 degrees with 15 20 mile an hour winds and walk around all day have a good time like you know we're not dying interesting. yeah it's a it's a way to keep warm that it changes everything it changes your ability. What would when uh Emily and her was here when I had the exchange student from Norway yeah I call her my exchange daughter. Because like she's still family they're out there listening to shout out to my family in norway and uh but um that's what she would always say because in norway the weather is so inhospitable that i they do all these outdoor activities and i always asked her i was like how the fuck do you play soccer and you do all this stuff like norway is cold as shit and they're like there's no such thing as bad weather just bad clothes and I didn't understand that. Mm, I didn't. That's, that's deep. I did not understand that, but now I do. Like so, yeah. My
1: my whole kit outfit thing is pretty good. So. So I'm looking up Sherpa jackets right now on Amazon, and of course they all come up in female jackets. So do they even make dude Sherpa jackets. Oh hell yeah! Really yeah, this damn. is a real thing. Oh, okay,
0: I see. I'll show you my kits, man. You haven't seen my your, stuff. Your what? I'll show you my kits oh, I've got kits, for camping. Oh, not, kits,
1: not tits. I'm like, okay.
0: Oh, dude, my tits are beautiful. <laughs> I almost need a bra. Like, I'm like a decent A cup going on here. <laughs> Struggles I'm real. like
1: borderline B cup half the time. <laughs> so, so you said Vegas. I know you got a uh, convention coming up. The influencers
0: oh hell yeah i'm going je- back to vegas super jealous i'm not going to that one i know man that's all right yeah we we're going out to the military influencers conference in vegas we're going to be out there in november all the top military influencers across the country are there you know there's going to be people with podcasts nonprofits, whatever you name it uh grunt style foundation is going out there that's how i heard about it will and drew told me they're like you need to go to the conference and i was like sign me up it's fucking vegas <laughs> okay. let's go turn twist my arm will you and so uh Yeah, we're going to go out there. And that's where I got linked up with Operation Purify because uh, they had actually contacted me via Instagram and then Ryan Carey reached out and he was like, hey, are you going to be at the MIC in Vegas? I was like, you bet. And so, uh, yeah, I'm meeting up with them. I'm meeting up with Ryan and then uh, he works with the Savage Encounters and then Carlos Duran is going to be there. And then we got Dave Morrow from the Hard to Kill podcast. Now they're all from Canada, except for Carlos. I think he lives in L.A., and then they go down to Colombia to do their excursion down there in Colombia. In fact, Carlos is in Colombia right now, doing a Savage Encounters. Started on the 29th, That's so cool. it's like a 15 day trip, fully immersive in the jungle of Colombia. And the Savage Encounters is kind of cool because it's all about men, right? So they um, they take 15 men into the jungle, and then what 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 has been explained to me? I haven't done the excursion yet. Um, but what has been explained to me is that this is a rehabilitation program, and you go out there. They you go into Bogota, and then they fly you out into the jungle where they have uh, these ayahuasca camps. These tribes, right? So you're with indigenous people in the jungle, and this tradition has been going on for thousands of years. But As opposed to just going to like a regular ayahuasca ceremony if you were to recreate that uh, at other places you just show up you do the ceremony what they're doing a little bit different is is around these ceremonies was preparation Uh, and so one of the things that they're doing is like there is a 30 day prep before you leave to go to Colombia and then when you get to Colombia you're on a 15 day experience so it involves everything from plant baths they talk about swimming across the river and Covering yourself in mud and coming back, and there's ceremonies and there's traditions and there's foods and there's all of this preparation that goes into the experience. And then you go through the experience and then you're guided by the shamans and everything else. But they're taking thousands and thousands of years of culture and history and preparation. Like, do you think this is what these people were doing 2000 years ago for their warriors? for their tribe, for their people. And they're doing this. They're recreating this experience for us. And this is like a veterans outreach program. They, they have this mission to heal the veterans of the world. And uh, man, I thought, what a cool, absolutely cool thing. Because that was Ryan's big thing. It's like, he's a Canadian vet. He was a Canadian pro football player, And then he uh he worked he was in the service and he was an officer. So I was I busted his balls a little bit on that. It's like, oh, you're gonna be the first officer on the show, we're gonna have to have (laughs) fun with that. And uh he was like, Bring it. So uh, but you know, his message to me was really strong is it doesn't matter what country you're in, a veteran is a veteran. We're all the same. We all go through roughly the same shit, we all experience the same thing. He was in Afghanistan, he did a couple of tours overseas. You know, his experiences was very relatable to me. And I thought, he's right. It's not just veterans in the United States. It's veterans everywhere. Like veteran outreach should be all veterans. and you Can know, you imagine
1: the network that that could create if that was the case? I mean, it, it is the case, but I'm saying if people oh. were to utilize that, just that area or that realm, that network worldwide or global, that would be insane.
0: 100%. Yeah, because we're all very similar. I don't think it really matters what country you go to. I mean, military practice and military management theory, you know, has been refined over the centuries, you know, like a a well-tuned machine. So I would imagine that all militaries are relatively similar in their structure and design and your experience in them wouldn't be too much different. Not enough to not be relatable. And uh, so, yeah, I thought it was a great mission. I thought it was a great mission. And then, uh, you know, and it lines up well with what we're doing. The only difference uh, right now, and and they're still working on this part of it, is uh, we also want our military outreach to include veteran spouses. Right? right, Because the the women that go through the military experience, the spouses enlist at the same time that the soldier does. And, you know, uh, we're going to be shooting a podcast here in a, a week or so with Lainey Brewer. And her husband was on SEAL Team 6. And uh, her husband's name is Heath. And um, the stories that she has is incredible. And when she talks about her trauma, like her trauma was was tremendous you know he's deployed he's going out there he's on all these special op missions she doesn't know where he's at she doesn't know what's going on uh all of a sudden the the uniformed soldiers are showing up on post and they're delivering flags you know he was involved uh in some of the highest casualty operations that we had suffered you know and so at one point they had lost like 30 guys and uh you know she's like i'm there on post flags are getting delivered every day she's like every time one of these vehicles roll up like you're wondering am i next you know you're expecting your spouse isn't coming home and
1: obviously i get emotional because damn that's a lot man yeah, if you if you take it to heart you know sincerely yeah I, I don't i couldn't conceptualize that
0: yeah the trauma that the spouses are going through in those events not to just mention you know I I had my first divorce in the military, and it was before wartime even occurred, and the biggest thing that got me is, you know, when you get married and you make the commitment to say, hey, I'm going to marry this person, you're telling this person that you are the most important person in my life, you are my number one, you're my partner, and I'm going to prioritize you above all things, the problem is anytime you're in service, and I imagine this isn't any different for uh, first responders, right? when you are in a position where your job is to serve, your, your number one is whatever you're serving. If you're a police officer and you get that phone call, it doesn't matter what is going on in your life, You have to get up, you have to leave, you have to go. That is your number one. If you're in the military, it's the same way. You know, I was on rapid deployment uh, watch several times where uh, you have to be, you have basically a bags packed in the corner and you have to have a so many hour recall and then you have to be ready to fully deploy within so much time. Yeah, it doesn't matter what's going on. Middle of a birthday, kid's party, birth of your baby. It doesn't matter. If that phone rings, you got to go. And that puts a stress on relationships that not everybody is built for. Yeah. And my first wife was not built for that. She could not understand that Army came first. Army was number one. She was number two. And there was nothing I could do about that. And so that puts a stress on the relationship. And then you add in wartime and you add in everything else. You know, these spouses are sitting at home if there's children involved. A lot of them are having babies. A lot of them are raising kids on their own. A lot of them are just single parents. And they're doing this with, I mean, they have support, family support groups and things are out there. But not all of them are created equally. Some of the support groups, especially at the early time at Fort Riley, they were terrible. And a lot of these people are just floundering on their own and they know no idea what to do. So they've
1: suffered legitimate trauma. I was uh recently, I decided to reread American Sniper, Chris Kyle's book. And there's a spot where his wife, Taya, talks about that, where she, he went on mission. She kind of knew where he was going, knew he was always on helicopters because they were obviously going in and infiltrate quick, you know, in and out type of, type of missions. And there was a, a report on the news, you know, the... Spec op community took massive losses. I don't know how many were killed in a helicopter crash at this specific area. And she could not get a hold of him for days. Mm-hmm. And she just had that gut feeling like it was him. And then she got a phone call and it was him. Hey, babe. Like, everything's fine. Like, and she's just like, a, you know, emotionally a wreck, you know. And I I look at that. And you know, when you look at uh, the movies that, uh, that was Mel Gibson, uh, We Were Soldiers. And they have that two sides of the angle you have the, the men fighting the war and then you have the women front fighting at home mm-hmm. and then they start showing the taxi drivers delivering these the, the letters of you know your unfortunately your spouse has been passed away due to you know KIA and the military wasn't prepared for that battle mm-hmm. specifically that's why they had taxi drivers doing it and just the trauma that that goes the ripple effect oh. of of war is well, is so vast
0: that has been that has been my biggest push in everything that we're doing with our outreach, and especially as we get more steeped into psychedelic medicine and therapy, is you have to realize that trauma is universal. It's not just specific to veterans Everyone. or even veteran spouses, right? There's people out there that have suffered rapes, that have near homicides, that, you know, I've said even once, that, you know, the there's traumas in my life that I've dealt with that was a passing statement by someone that maybe that person didn't even realize that they made that just landed that stuck. And it created years of trauma. And yeah, I've been to war, but that was significant. Like I'm still working through some of those things. So trauma comes from anywhere. And then you also have people too, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, and I can speak for Michelle on this because there's a lot of people too. You talk, not just being a veteran spouse, but, Another angle to being a veteran spouse that is universal in nature is one of the things that happens when these veterans go overseas, they get militarized, especially depending on your job, you're militarized. And if you're psych ops, if you're criminal investigation, if you're, you know, a war fighter and you're on the front lines, whatever the case is, you bring that home. The military teaches you how to militarize yourself. They teach you how to be a warfighter. They don't teach you how to turn it off. So you come back home and now all of these things that are your survival instincts that you built that have kept you alive this whole time, you start doing this to everyone. And who gets it more than anyone? Because we have this social dynamic. It's like, oh, well, we can be the worst person that we want to be to the people that are closest to us, right? So everybody puts on this fake face for all these strangers out there. But when it comes to your wife and your kids, you're at home and you're just, you're literally just doing terrible shit to them 24, seven, 24, seven. And there's a lot of war fighters that come home and they wage war on their family. You know, especially these people that are in Psychops or any of these mental things or, or whatever's going on. It's like they're waging war consistently on the people that are in their life. And you know, so you get into a relationship like that, 10, 15 years down the road, that's fucking trauma. You've you're, you're a mental mess. Of dealing with that person, and that's another part of the outreach that I want to get into eventually is teaching veterans to demilitarize, teaching veterans to protect home. Like, home is not where you treat people the worst. This is the place where you put the most care. Right, Your spouse gets the very best version of you. Your kids get the very best version of you. You know, if I'm out there in public and I have a bad off with someone and they're like, man, that guy's a dick. I really don't care about that all that much. Individual perceptions vary. If I did something that I thought was wrong, then sure, I'll own that. I'll apologize or whatever the case may be. But my family gets top priority. I put the best foot forward with them because all the work that I do on myself, I'm home, right? I'm number one. I have to be the very best version of myself that I can possibly be. I have to put in the work. I have to do the therapies, whatever it takes to get myself right. I you know, it's that that added, that whole thing of, you know, when you're on a plane and the gas the air mask come down, who puts it on first? Well, the parents should first because you can't save your kids if you're dying. Right? Right? So you work on you. And then then that goes to your spouse. That goes to your kids. And then you build this family unit that now is healthy right? Your home is no longer a place that you dread coming into. You know, I remember in my previous marriage, I'd get off work. I'd work a 10, 12 hour day. And then I would literally work longer sometimes just because I didn't want to go home. There were other days where I would drive around the block multiple times because I didn't want to go home because I knew when I was going home what I was going into. I was going into the most toxic environment of my day. Or I would park in the driveway and I would just sit in the driveway and listen to music until I got in the headspace to go deal with that. Home should never be that place. Home should never be this shit toxic place that you can't escape from because if it is how do you deal with life you don't everybody out there is putting all of that toxic negativity that they're creating in these internal bubbles are going out so if their home life is like that if their home is that toxic i I can use myself as an example when i was living in that space i was a shit human when i walked out everything was negativity everything was toxic everything was depression and anger and just i was that grumpy old vet and i let everybody know it i didn't fucking like life and you knew i didn't like life and i was going to make sure that every interaction and everything that i did everybody knew that that i was fucking miserable and you should be miserable too
1: my have the tides changed oh right (laughs) because you know life's gotta be so like when you what goes to your head when you look back and and you you Reflect the old version of you versus who you are now and the growth and you coming out of your full potential. And it's got to be unrecognizable. Yeah, that's
0: what I was unrecognizable. I look at situations. In fact, that has been a big part of my therapy. You go through life and you have experiences and you have memories. And in those experiences, there are outcomes. And so let's say there's a fight that maybe you and I had. 10 years ago, and maybe I felt really securely about that. In fact, there's a few examples that I've talked to you about. There was a individual that we both had experience with at a martial arts gym that I held a serious grudge with for the last 10 years of my life. And one of the things that I had to come to terms with as I was starting to reflect on these memories is I had to go back and put myself in those situations, look at the factors, then see it with a new set of eyes see it through a new lens, and look and say, what really happened here? What did I do that created this reaction? Was this person's reaction justified? What were they wrong in? What, how would I view that if that happened today? And what I've done is I've sent out a lot of apologies. I wrote that gentleman specifically a very long, very heartfelt apology because when I looked at that situation, he was wrong too, there were some things that he could have done better, but ultimately I was a dick and what I did wasn't right. And, you know, I had to own that. I had to say, Hey, you know, man, this is, I could do better. And you know what? I'm not really going to shut the door on that. If you would like to reconnect, if you would like to whatever, then I'm open to that, you know, kind of curious to see where you're at in life now. And uh, so that's what I've done with it. It's just, trying to understand and reshape all of my experiences, getting rid of those biases, because I don't know necessarily anymore. I don't trust my past. I guess that's the best example. Right. You know, so I've been trying to give everybody second chances or forgive when I can. Uh, but it's also made me too. uh, in that same breath, it's also made me a little bit more, um, I will close doors easier now there if I recognize a situation and I say a hundred percent, this person is not somebody that I want in my life because of this behavior, because of where they're at in life. I don't have animosity toward them anymore. I still love them. I still wish them the best, but that door is not open. That door is not open. I'm not going to let that in my circle. That's not going to come into my field of influence. You can go be you, Best of luck to you, but I am not going to make that a part of it, which I think when I was going through that toxic lifestyle, I was welcoming that. Because I was attracting it, right? That law of attraction. I was going out there and attracting all of this bad shit. And so what were you going to find? You're going to find bad people. And now that I'm on a different path in life, law of attraction is still true. Now I'm finding all of these wonderful, loving, open, accepting people that are coming in that are all committed to self-improvement, that are all trying to become better humans, who are at varying degrees of this you know i meet people all the time that are on a higher frequency than me and it's like oh fuck i'm trying to get to your level now
1: monica adams oh 100 what an amazing woman oh the energy
0: the energy that she puts out and you know it's hard i i don't know how much of that comes through on a podcast but when you're in a room with a person like that you just feel it you know yeah yeah it's powerful and her mom's a sweetheart Absolutely. Such a good person. Yeah. The the energy and the charisma, that is I don't know, man. She should be like uh one of those like prep rally people. Yeah. Like that when she walks into a room, it's like I'm on fire. Yeah. I'm like, I'm ready to go. And to carry that kind of energy and that charisma with you at all time and that serious zeal for life,
1: yeah, those are the people I want to be around. One thing I liked about her too was you know, we've had people on the podcast where they're, you know, they're kind of quiet and, you know, but the second the mics turn on, they they hit that switch and they're on. It's not like that with her. She's just always on. She's always on.
0: Yeah. From the time she came through the front door to standing in the kitchen to the time she hit the table. There's Full never speak. a different version. No. Never I a love
1: different that. version. I mean, it's just it's genuine. I yeah. love that.
0: Well, it's it's about being authentic, you know, and and I think that that's, yeah, that's a quest for anybody. It's 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 it's. And that's why I don't. I don't hate on myself either like I want to I really want to say that too you know when I look back on how I used to be uh, I used to carry regret regret was a big theme in my life like I would have so much regret and that led to a lot of depression and a lot of stuff like that and now I realize that like look you are who you are you can only make decisions you can only do actions based on your frame of reference at any given point in time that you're experiencing that at that particular point in time, I didn't know what I know now. I didn't have this lens to look through. I didn't have these people in my life. I didn't have access to the resources that I have access to. I was dealing with my own shit, too. I don't really regret anything that I've done. Uh, I think some things I could have done better. But ultimately, if you were to take me and put me back into that same space, is if I don't have this new lens... I'm nine out of 10 times I'm probably going to do the same thing. Right. So why why would you spend time regretting it? You made the very best decision that you could at the time with the information that you had. I I'm still doing that. I could wake up and oh fuck the podcast is a perfect example of that. There is views that I'm going to share in the next coming weeks or or months that three four podcasts ago. I maybe went on a tangent about because I believed really strongly in this position. And now it's like, eh, that I was full of shit or I wasn't right. I shouldn't have looked at it that way. I misspoke here. And then you just correct it and you move on. You can't sit there and be like, Oh my God, I wish I would have never said that. No. At that time, that's what I believed at this time. I now know better or I believe something.
1: It's always good too, to have people in your life that will challenge your views. And you just have to be open enough to, actually listen, pay attention and see it from their their side.
0: Well, it brings me to that Mile Angelo quote. So I so remember uh, you know, Eric, the professor, right? Yeah. He's got the do better. So that phrase do better actually comes from a woman named Mile Angelo. Maya Angelo was this really influential person and she was a, a writer and a and a influencer and, and all these other things. And she has several quotes. And if you actually dig into that specific quote, do better. What she says is, when you know better, do better. And that changes everything. (laughs) You know, when you just take the do better part of it and you apply that to everything, well, that isn't always possible. Because you could be doing the very best that you are doing in that moment. You're doing whatever it is that you're doing to the very best of your capability. But when you know better, now you're responsible to do better. Well, that means next time, in the next opportunity, in the next moment, in the next event. It doesn't mean that you can go back and rewrite your past. Right. So to me, everything is, I stopped living in the past. I just put it behind me. Those are lessons. I learned what I needed to learn. I grew. I changed. I made mistakes. Again, all lessons. Also, perfectly aware that I'm still doing that. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still learning. I'm not doing everything perfect. That's impossible. But when I know better, I'm going to keep doing better. So now my life exists more in the present and more in the future. But I've tried to shut that future lens off too because I was spending, and this is a very recent thing, ayahuasca really helped me with this. I was spending too much time trying to force the future trying to push the future and just gotta let it happen man make it happen right now i just i know a direction i have a general waypoint of where i'm heading and i'm not putting time frames on it i'm not putting particulars to it or 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 because look it could change a million percent overnight you know, you could think that you're going to go out here and you're going to do X, Y, Z. One sleep can change that. And yeah, then you you wake up the next day and you realize that, yeah, you're doing the same thing. But by the way, you're doing it with, you know, ABC. And it's just a completely different experience. So why are you going to steep all of your interest in XYZ? I think you should just realize that, yes, I'm going to go do this thing. But however that happens, I'm going to have to figure that out when it happened, why it's happening. That's where the vision comes in. That's where keeping your eyes open, being ready for opportunity comes in. I'm just constantly scanning now, looking for the doors that open in the direction that I want to be going. And then I try to walk through them. But so most of my life, most of my focus now is in the present. It's just about learning to be. and that's where the most fulfillment has come from. Because, you know, and again, another ayahuasca teaching, um that's the purpose of everything is our experience what we are experiencing in the right here the right now are all of our five senses you know six sense if you want to go to that as well we live in a visceral world full of environmental stimuli our job is to experience that stimuli the very best of our ability at all times You should hear everything. You should see everything. You should engage with everything that's around you. You should feel everything. You should do your best to learn to just be. Be in the moment. Be in the conversation, right? Be with the people that you're with at that moment in time. Be in the environment that you're in at that moment in time. How many people do you know go on vacation and they drive all the way to the beach and then they play on their phone? Or they drive all the way to the beach and then they're talking to you about what they're doing next week or what they did last week. Why does any of that matter? Why did you drive all the way to the beach to sit in front of the ocean to sit there and think in your brain about what's going to happen tomorrow, what happened yesterday, what's on your phone, what is other people doing? Your job in that moment is to sit in that space and take in what you were experiencing, the people that are around you. The water that's in front of you, the sand beneath your feet, the temperature in the air, the sun, the clouds, whatever, the animals that might be around—that's life. And if you're not doing that, you're missing it. Like you're literally missing it. The only thing that's real is the present. And if you're spending all of your time outside of the present and you're in your head and you're over here, like no, like you know that is the one thing the professor teach is have have no balance. Have balance by having no balance, right? When he's at work, 100% in work. When he's at home, 100% at home. When I'm in this conversation with you, I'm 100% here. And when I'm in a conversation with somebody else, I try to be 100% there. And to just be in that space, 100% at that moment in time. And that's balance. That's how you're going to find your your, your, your core balanced to everything. You're going to find your, like, center because then you realize, well, I'm living the experience that I'm supposed to be living. I'm getting the most out of it. So I don't know. That was a long way to answer that question. Yes, it was. But <laughs> did did I do an okay
1: job? No, no, you're good. You're good. I'm going to refill my drink. Yeah. Coffee-holic. He's got a gallon. Is That's is that that's coffee, right? That is 100% coffee. But look, I switched to decaf,
0: and uh, I switched to this thing called dandy blend. So one of the things that I had to do with the dieta for ayahuasca and i think i talked about this on the podcast i had to quit caffeine Mm -hmm. and so my dumbass, i had been drinking monsters for a while and uh i have been very um aware of my caffeine intake so uh one of the things that i had a doctor tell me a long time ago was like don't go over 500 milligrams a day so i would never drink more than 500 milligrams of caffeine a day and um Somewhere along the line, I got bad information or I misinterpreted information. I was under the impression that a pot of coffee had about 110 to 115 milligrams of caffeine in a pot of coffee. And so I was drinking like three pots of coffee a day. Right. I didn't think I was thinking that's 300 milligrams, roughly 350 milligrams of caffeine. And every now and then I'd grab for a monster and I'd have like one monster a day to supplement that. And I'd be under 500 milligrams a day. I thought that's what I was doing. I was wrong. Very, very wrong. So apparently I was taking you more like 3000 milligrams of caffeine a day. Yeah, I was
1: gonna say it's a lot. Because
0: it's per (laughs) serving. It's like 95 milligrams of caffeine per serving and there's 12 servings (laughs) per pot jesus christ jesus christ to do the math i'm drinking three of those a day
1: how'd your dick not fall off
0: dude it was (laughs) it was so when i had caffeine withdrawals
1: uh yeah you said that shit was real
0: dude i from my lower back all the way down to my legs almost like restless leg syndrome i had this ache that started and it was like, you know when you're doing a hamstring stretch and you get to the end and it's just that hollow, that one that you just can't stand. Like, you're just like, oh, it makes you quit. Yeah. for Everything from my lower back to the to my toes felt that way. And there was nothing, I mean nothing, that I could do to relieve it. It was just the most excruciating, annoying thing. It's not a level 10 pain. It's a level 7 pain. Like, you can deal with it. But it doesn't stop and it doesn't go away and it just hurts and it hurts and it doesn't matter if you're laying down if you're standing up what you're doing. Oh man, I 100% became bitch on this. Like there was moments to where I was just laying on the ground, literally just squirming around like dying and just couldn't get it to go away, couldn't get comfortable, and I'm just on the floor just squirming. And I was like, no, nope, we're done with caffeine. We're done. This is a, this is a one and done for me. Like, I quit it, and then I switched to decaf. Now, decaf coffee has caffeine in it. Um, A pot of decaf coffee has around 40 to 50 milligrams of caffeine. So So your numbers are a little more accurate now. So my numbers are a little bit more accurate now. Um, But I also switched to this stuff called Dandy Blend, which is a dandelion. It's an instant mix that you can buy, and it tastes very similar to coffee, and it's fantastic. And I drink it the same way I do my coffee. I just put a shot of heavy cream in it. And because uh, that's carnivore friendly, mm-hmm. so I got to stick with my diet, <laughs> and uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And so, yeah, I I switched to that, and that's what I pretty much drink now. And uh, it's a lot healthier. I'm not as not going to die so quickly. And then there's a lot of benefits to the the coffee. There's a lot of benefits to the Dandy Blend. Like there's health benefits associated
1: with that. Those are powerful plants. That's cool. I'm, I'm I've in the last few months I've learned a lot about powerful plants and. <laughs> what they can do in on the abysmal side, and oh powerful plants man that's a thing I'm telling you what
0: i am I'm in awe of plant medicine at this point. The amount of plant medicine that that I am starting to move toward and use is nothing short of life changing The ayahuasca experience was the single most life changing thing I've ever done, and ever even could have imagined doing. If somebody would have looked at me and said, I'm going to send you away for the weekend for three days. And in that three days, you're going to be the equivalent of 10 years of therapy. And, oh, by the way, I'm also going to give you a lifetime of seminary. And you're going to wake up on the third day. And when you open your eyes, you are not going to see the world the same way ever again. You're going to look at the world just like you did when you were a kid full of wonder and imagination and magic and you are going to love life and you are going to learn to be happy and it's just going to be permanent i would have been like okay sure what else you selling right what else come on that's such bullshit but wait
1: there's more (laughs) but wait
0: there's more and that's exactly how i feel it's been three weeks now it's i'm three weeks from my last ceremony and it's permanent, brother. I mean, I did the integration. There's work. You know, the one thing that you have to realize is like when you're in these circles, you're in circles with these group of people that are all doing the same thing. And, it, and it's very harmonious. It's very spiritual. It's it's very uh, positive and all around personal development and everybody's aligned. But the second that you get three inches down the road, you go back into the, the matrix. It's not like that. And so now you're you're entering the world like a kid again with this new lens, with this new set of eyes. And then you have to kind of figure out, like, how do I use these teachings in my day-to-day life? Like, how do I make these things stick? And so there's some integration that comes with that. But what I have done, uh, one, I pretty much self-isolated the first week. I very slowly allowed myself to integrate back out into society because I knew this was a problem. And I was so happy with the changes that I made that I was like, it doesn't matter. It can wait. I really need this to stick. And then I started doing a lot of meditation. I started doing a lot of sauna. I did meditation while I'm sonning, Uh, because it's like learning to get inside of yourself, to process your own emotions, to get more in touch with feeling, to get more in touch with intuition and, and thought, right? And to just clear out the clutter. And so I've been spending a lot of time in meditation. I'm meditating as much as possible. I'm taking moments to meditate. Uh, I'm, I'm creating spaces in my days for that. I've also taken time too, which is different for me. I've taken time for prayer, which I don't know how I feel about that, but...
1: <laughs> is, it, is it actual prayer or is it meditation?
0: Oh, it's... It, it's 100% prayer. Like if, if there's any, anything that ayahuasca did for me, the borderline open-minded atheist was teach me spirituality. Like I definitely believe that there's a source and you know, a lot of people would call that God. I don't know if I agree with that term. Because when I think of God, I think of the the guy in the sky, the individual person with the beard, and... and Let's, when, just,
1: let's just call it the one.
0: Yeah, exactly. It is. It's it's a one. It's an energy. It's, it's an all-consuming everything that's in everything, that's in us, that's everywhere. It is omnipresent, right? But there's so many layers to that. And then when you go through your ayahuasca experience and you realize this, it completely reshapes how you look at the world. And so then prayer is a thing. Now, it's not like you would think of like, I'm not praying like I would if it was a traditional Christian prayer. I'm not, you know, dear God and all this stuff. right? But prayer is, I think, more intention setting, manifest, clarity of thought, speaking to yourself or speaking out loud the things that you're grateful for, the things that are giving you perspective. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to own these last couple of weeks is, Appreciating what's in my environment, appreciating what I have. One of the things that ayahuasca did for me that I never thought would be possible is it completely ended materialism. I have been the most materialistic person, and you know this I am a bougie bitch. You are, a I am a bitch. eclectic and bougie, and I am material driven and have been my whole life, and that's gone. Like completely gone. Because you realize that you you can't you can't leave this experience without this overwhelming sense of purpose and gratitude. And then you just need to be grateful for the experience. And that comes back to the just being. You you are just grateful for what you have. I'm just grateful that this is my plot in life. I'm grateful that I'm me. Like I could have been born in any other version, at any other space, at any other time. But I was uniquely created to be who I am right here, right now,
1: by choice. It's so crazy hearing you say that and knowing all the conversations <laughs> we've had in the past. <laughs> oh, I know what I, an oxymoron. I imagine, <laughs> I imagine
0: there's some of our listeners out there like this dude is fucking nuts. Like, I'm out. What,
1: what kind of tree hugging hippie is this guy? He was not like those guys. I
0: promise. Oh, dude! I tell you what, <laughs> I you I, actual tree hugger. So we were like the next day when you're, when you go through ayahuasca, you're super in tune, like you're in tune with everything. And I was standing out at this, uh, we, so, uh, when we were on our way back, we stopped by this, uh, town and they had this 50 foot tall leg lamp from Christmas story. Right. And so I'm, I'm out there, we're (laughs) checking out this. And I was like, I got to see the giant leg lamp. And so we're out there, we're checking out this leg lamp and, um, there was this tree just to the side of it, and it's an old oak tree and whatever. But for whatever reason, I just felt compelled like to touch the tree. I just wanted to feel the energy from the tree. And uh, so I walked over, and I put my hand on the tree and hung out with the tree for a minute. And like, actual tree hugger now. Like, legit.
1: There's a, a thing I saw the other day about a guy saying that we as humans have a charge. And that we should, he called it grounding. Have you heard of that before? Oh, a thousand percent. And he said it's, like, super, super effective if you do it every day for, like... There's a place... So there's a couple of different things. And
0: Father Mark is the one that introduced me to this idea. So Father Mark talks about our energy. Our soul is still an energy. It's still a charge. And there's an optimal charge for this. And so there's a company out there. In fact, they have one up in... um, energy enhancement systems they have a space in st peter's and then i think they also have another one in st louis which they just started but this works on this um this magnetic field energy uh resonance and light therapy what and what they're doing is is they're creating these waves and i forgot uh, the name of the waves but uh essentially the way it was explained to me is if you took two hoses with exactly the same mass Right. And we all know physics and you were to point them at each other and you were in the exact perfect position when they hit together, they would actually not explode. One would go up and one would go down. Right. Right. And if you took four, then you would have one would go up, one would go down, one would go left, one would go right. And when you think about our world as a perfect circle, that makes sense. North, south, east, west. And then what happens is when these energy waves hit each other, it creates a loop. And the center of that loop is supercharged. And that's what they do in these rooms. They put these machines at all corners of the room and they're creating that reaction, whatever that is called. It's a certain type of wave. Um, But they're creating this reaction and then they're placing you in the center and it's charging you. And it's literally increasing your charge. And I've went up there. I've done some meditation there and stuff like that. It's a really cool space. And uh, when Father Mark started doing it, I mean, holy cow! You talk about a difference. That guy came out of there and he was like, "I felt like I could go run a couple of miles." No shit. Oh yeah, and he, within a few weeks, when I seen him, he had started doing it about three or four weeks, and he was going really consistently and regularly. And then, uh, I got, I got with him. Uh, we went and met for dinner, and uh, dude, he looked younger. Good for him. Measurably younger. He looked healthier. He looked younger. He looked completely different. Enough that it was recognizable. I even told him that. I was like, dude, you look different. Like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I switched up my diet. He was more like keto and stuff like that. And he started the energy therapy and then he was running me through that. So, yeah, I really do believe that we have an optimal charge and then everything in nature is got energy as well. So like I try to do that as well. Like grounding is a thing you hear a lot of hikers talk about. Like a lot of times when I'm out hiking, I will barefoot, you know, I will take a space and when it's safe, cause I don't want to like damage my feet. I mm-hmm. will walk barefoot in the woods or I'll walk outside barefoot and just stand in the grass. Like there's a legitimate science to that. And that helps me ground, you know, especially if I've ever, um, I did this a couple of weekends ago, um, I had a moment of panic. I had some really bad news come across that I really didn't like, and I started panicking, and I, I wasn't responding to it very well. So what I did is I took my shoes off, and I squatted down. I put my hands and my feet on the ground, and I just grounded. And within a few minutes, I my energy kind of resettled, and I was able to to better deal with the situation. Hmm. So it's a practice that I 100% use. Interesting. Yeah. Makes me a tree hugger. File that under the neat category. Yeah. <laughs> How neat is that? Yeah. But, you know, I'm pretty in tune with nature, like the camping and the hiking. Like we're we're always out and hunting. You know, that's a big part of that. I try to be in nature as much as I can.
1: Hunting. You're talking about love language.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> and and I think that uh, I think the ayahuasca experience spoke on that quite a bit. It was like, you know, That your your connection to the source is in nature. Your connection to the source is in you. So meditation's important. Meditation could be prayer, right? Meditating is very important to staying grounded. Meditating is very important to staying connected. And when you get outside of nature, that's important too. You can disconnect yourself from the energy sources with all the stuff that we have in our homes and we're blocked from light and, and there's all of these other things that are going on and, and some of that is science, right? The light that comes through your windows is not the same. You're not going to get the same level of vitamin D as if you were standing out in it. It's a, it changes the frequency of the light. And so the quality of the light has changed. So intensity has changed. So even when we create these man-made environments, which they're not bad, but you have to realize that they're limiting and they can be disconnecting. And so you got to take the time to get outside, get into nature. You know, I think that's why you see such a high level of atheists and you see such a high level of, you know, scientific dogma type people that are in cities. You know, go up to St. Louis and live in St. Louis for a week. You're going to wake up in a building, you're going to walk downstairs on the concrete streets and concrete roads. If you're lucky, somebody's going to have a tree planted somewhere. You're going to see cars passing. You're going to see people passing. You're going to be eating at restaurants. You're going to be doing stuff. You know, when I, last time I was uh, a few years ago, I went up to St. Louis and we went to this restaurant. They have this grass fed beef restaurant in St. Louis. And in the middle of the um, the restaurant, they have this big cow statue, right? And I thought it was just like a gimmick right but then they started showing all the cuts of the meat and then when i was sitting there and i was watching all these people come up to it i was watching all these people that were like oh wow this is where the meat comes from oh my god and i thought how could that be how could that be and then but then you think about that environment if you're living in that environment 24 7 and you're never leaving the city And how many people do we know that don't do that? I literally tried to buy something off uh, off of Facebook a couple of weeks ago and asked for delivery. And it was in St. Louis. And I said, I would pay this woman like an extra $50 to deliver it to me. And she was like, sure, I'll do that. And then when I told her where I live, she goes, oh, well, that's more than a few miles. I'm not going to do that. She wasn't willing to go more than four or five miles away from her home. Anything over that was just too far.
1: Sounds like a very boring life.
0: Well, but you have people that are living in that. And then you wonder why they're so disconnected, why they believe the way that they believe or why they think the things that they think. They're never out in nature. They've never hunted an animal, let alone processed their own animal. They've never took that food from the field to the plate. Why would they give thanks for something that they don't understand? Right. You know, even before not being religious at all, I would still give thanks for the deer that was on my plate because I know where it came from. Mm -hmm. I am grateful that that animal gave its life for my substance. Like, that doesn't have to be a religious thing, that can just be an appreciation for your environment. That's respect. Respect. And so, yeah, those things I think are, are important to staying balanced.
1: Anytime I get into the debate of country life versus city life, I always challenge people that live in the city look up at night. Tell me how the stars are. Now, drive 60 miles south of my house, and you tell me how vibrant the stars are. And, yeah. and my kids, they're like, I don't see the stars anywhere because we went to the Blues game at night. And that was one thing my daughter said. She's like, where's the stars at? I'm like, you're not going to see them here, sweetheart. You're not going to see them.
0: Well, and, and that preaches why I'm so big into diversity, though. I, I think that there's purpose in all of these environments. And the key is to have as much diversity with them as possible. You know, that's when I took that trip out west. That, that was one of my biggest things that I took away from that. Is it's like the United States is so vast and so diverse and all these living environments are so different. It almost doesn't make sense that we're trying to manage it as one group. Right. Can't. It, it almost seems like this should be Asonite. individual. You know, you could almost make the argument, and I'm not making that argument now. I want to be very clear for the listeners. I'm not like some, you know, revolutionary or anything like that. <laughs> but you could almost make the argument that the United States could be broken up into four or five separate countries because they're so uniquely different. The environment, the people, the culture— the everything that's there and you, what what is good for somebody in Missouri isn't really applied to somebody that lives in New Mexico. No. And to think that a law that's passed here somehow has to have bearance over somebody that lives there, that doesn't really make any sense. They're living a completely different existence and their cultures are different and their heritages are different. And there's a lot of stuff going on there that, you know, it gives credence to the state rights thing. It, it also... Uh, it really makes doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you look at it as like a universal government structure. It's like, you know, um, but I, I think it's more the more diversity that you have, the more that you can expose yourself. If you live in the country, you need to go to the city you because, you know, the, the people live in the country. They're limited, too. They're oh, yeah. they're not seeing social structure. They're not seeing the social class structures. They're not they're not getting inundated into that. They they you know one of the biggest things that I see with country people is they get this uh, very narrow um you know I, not not so much just race but let's call it culture mm. right um everybody that lives in the Midwest they preach that oh we're just not cultured here. Well the problem is is that's an inaccurate statement. I believe I think that we have this very powerful monoculture. We have a culture in the Midwest. We do. And it's a singular culture. There's no diversity in it. So, when you live here in the Midwest and you live out in the country, if you're not pushing yourself to diversity, if you're not traveling, if you're not experiencing the world and educating yourself on that, then you're going to get steeped into this monoculture. And then you're not open to anything else. Where if you're doing those other things, and I think that's why people that live in cities sometimes tend to be, quote-unquote, more cultured, mm-hmm. but they're getting more diverse experience sets right? so that they get to see that. And then, you know, I, I've learned a lot about myself. A lot of the things that I grew up with, a lot of the thoughts that I would think were normal, I look back at now and I, I realize they were bigotist or they were racist or they were whatever. Um, they weren't grounded in any fact, you know. Um, it's amazing to me like and i talked about that when brian was on it's amazing to me how much bigotry i've held in my life to groups of people without really giving any consideration for the reality that was happening at the time right. you know i talked about that with the iraq people it's like you know i i for many years of my life i was very bigotist and, and racist to anybody that was arab or especially muslim uh i just had such a disdain for it and i was um, I did not view it well. I mean, a typical racist. I mean, that's what I was. And um, now when I when I see it through a different lens, like we were talking about earlier, I realize, you know, 80, 90% of my experiences there were with wonderful people. Like, here I am. I'm walking on their streets in their country, armed, a soldier from another land. And they're coming out and asking me if I'm hungry, if I need food or water. or You know, they're waving at me and saying hello. They're, they're offering not to shoot at me. You know, how different is that than what you hear here? Right. You know, if, if somebody said, oh, if, you know, a foreign country, you know, landed on
1: our soils. There's and... a blade of grass, a gun behind every yeah. bit of grass. Be it's coming out.
0: completely different. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I'm just saying, it's like, how could you have so much bigotry and hatred for per- people when your experience with those people has been nothing but positive? You know, and I'll challenge people too. I, I had to learn that with the city. You know, I didn't go around cities very much. And it wasn't really until I got with Michelle a few years ago that I started going to the city more. It's like I used to have all of these very racist thoughts, you know, what crime was and where crime came from and all of this stuff. And I've been going to the city pretty regularly for several years now. And I'll tell you what, I don't hold any of those anymore. Mm-mm. It's nothing like that. And I have met some of the nicest people, you know, in some of the best situations. And... It's it is it's funny how you can have such a narrow scope of life that you develop these racist tendencies or these bigotries that are not founded in any reality at all. It's because your uncle said it or your dad said it. You know, or my, you saw it on the news. My dad was really racist, and I realized that a lot of the thoughts that I grew up with were were steeped in that, right? Or from other people that you met that had these tendencies, right? But what I will say that I've realized here recently. And again, another ayahuasca come together for me was acknowledging it. You're still holding a little bit of racism. But the things that I've realized, like with whether it be homophobia, racism, bigotries that I've had, when I feel the need to stop acknowledging it, that is when I realize that I've moved past it. Right. Like, I think I was for a for a period of my life, I was was relatively homophobic and um, I would be around people, and I thought I was being accepting. Like, I thought, like, I was, oh, that person's gay, but I'm being inclusive. But to me, there was still a little bit of a standoffishness there, because their homosexuality bothered me, and I didn't agree with it, or I didn't like it. And so, to me, it was like, I didn't want that around. Or, you know, even if they were around, it was like, well, this is my gay friend. See, I'm a super accepting guy. And uh, now I've realized that, I've moved past that because now I just don't even notice. Right. I just don't care. Or just a friend. Yeah, I just don't care. It's like, this is my friend. And I don't, you know, sexuality aside, like, I just I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not even a thing. No. You know, and it's like you, when you get that way with race, you get that way with religion, you get that way with everything else. And it's like, you know, that that I think is the... You get away from being a good human. Yeah. Yeah, it is. it is. It's a better place to be. I'm happier. And it's also another thing that I keep working on. You know, because it's like I want to get rid of as many of those identifiers and all that identity politics. The the
1: world would be so beautiful without it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's going to be a tough one, though. Everybody, you know, this is something. Actually, this is a really good segue for this because this is a conversation I think you're going to like. Um, So I was I was having a conversation with Michelle the other day in the kitchen. And I realized that the thing that in the past would bother me about, like, l- let's talk about homosexuals, because those would be the best example of this that I can think of right now. I used to make statements that it would bother me because people would come in and they knew, like, the first words out of their mouth was, well, I'm gay. Right? And it was like, you couldn't hardly start a conversation if somebody had to tell you, like, oh, I'm a gay. Okay, or great.
1: I'm, I'm vegan.
0: Like, you know, or <laughs> vegan or whatever. And it was like, okay, great. Like, I don't really care what your sexuality is. Right? What I didn't realize, and I realize now, that's an identifier. They're identifying. When they make that statement, the reason why they're making that statement is they're not wanting you to know their sexuality. They're wanting you to know all of the things that come around with that. They're, 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 that's their way of telling you that they like fashion or that they like creative stuff or whatever other thing that you want to put in it. Not all homosexual people are the same, but you know whatever the stereotype you want to throw in there, they're putting themselves in a camp right? And then I realized, oh, wait a second. We're all doing that. When a guy walks in and I'm a man's man, right? Or I'm a hunter or I'm a veteran. Well, buddy, I'm doing the same thing. When I walk into a room and I'm say I'm a veteran and I wear my grunt style clothes and I look like a veteran, I'm identifying in that moment. I am taking on that identity because I want you to know, I'm projecting to you what I want you to know about me. That's my signature. We're all doing it all the time. So I think that that's not a bad thing. What what we have the challenge is now is we have to find out when it is a bad thing and when, when where to stop it. How to balance. Right. Right? Because we all want to have our identity. You know, maybe I don't walk into a room and be like, I'm a heterosexual male. Because that's a given. I don't need to identify myself as a heterosexual male. The majority of men are heterosexual. Majority of men that look like me are heterosexual, or they're bears, right? And I could be a definite bear. I'm sexy as fuck. <laughs> you um, hairy enough? Dun dun dun, <laughs> I, dude. I have this bear wall thing down, uh, but it's they're just identifiers, and people are identifying themselves all the time. So when you say somebody that well, you know, like I used to, well, I that's the only thing I, I don't I don't mind gay people, but you know, I don't like it when they just put their gayness in my face. Well they're not putting Jesus their Christ. they're not putting their gayness in your face. No, they're they're just telling you that this is their identity. This is how they identify. This is what they want you to know about them. This is their this is their logo, their symbol, right? And then when you see it like that, it's like, oh well that's kind of beautiful. I actually like that. Thank you for letting me know a little bit about you. You gave me a brand and an identity, something that I can understand, right? No different than why Apple has that apple. You know that when you see that Apple, that logo, they're telling you about who they are. Why do people tattoo that on their body, right? Well, how come, you know, when you when I open up my MacBook, it's got that pretty little Apple there, right? Because you know as soon as you meet me and as soon as I pull out that MacBook and you see that little Apple, that tells you something about who I am, doesn't it? That's an identifier. When I pull up my iPhone, you know I'm an Apple guy. That's communicating something to you. Team Droid. <laughs> it's, but it's an identity, right. right? And so we're wearing the same things. We're wearing our brands through our labels. When you say, I'm a hunter, that's an identity. I'm a veteran, that's an identity. I'm a man's man, that's an identity. That's all those are. And that's all anybody else is doing either. So when somebody is steeped in their culture and they say, well, you know, I'm Hispanic or I'm this or they want to identify, they're just identifying. But we've turned these into political things, which I think is the problem. Because there shouldn't be politics involved in that. I agree. Right? They're, those are just things that are people are communicating about themselves, about who they are. These aren't divisive things. They're not separators. It doesn't mean just because you're a hunter and I'm a non-hunter that me and you can't be friends, or that you're Algerian and I'm American that we can't be friends, or that you're homosexual and I'm a straight male that we can't be friends. Like, Why do those identifiers have anything to do with our interaction as humans?
1: I'm a non-hunting Algerian oh you're sexy damn that's good a lot of things i'm not but hey i respect it yeah
0: yeah i don't know i mean i i know i went a long way around on that one but it's you know those are things again it just comes back to what we were saying earlier you you don't you can't do better until you know better and so i walked around a lot of my life believing that what i was doing was right i could justify it because you hear people justify that stuff all the time i'm not a racist i have a black friend. Okay, well, you just justified the fact that you're a racist. Right. Good for you. Um, Because the fact that you even had to make that statement in and of itself is kind of racist. Like, that's just the reality of it. When you don't feel the need to have to say that anymore, then you probably move past that. Right. You know, so we just, but I was guilty of it. I was 100% guilty of it. But now I'm aware of it. So now I have a responsibility to do better. Like now I'm responsible for changing that in the future. Right. Right. You know, and then and, and there's there's limits and levels and everything else. And and of course, you know, you navigate the water and make mistakes. Sometimes I don't do as good as I should, but then I learn my lesson and then I try to do better next time.
1: Right. You know, that's all it is. I always, I always feel like it's so limiting when you do put a title on something or you add a race to it. Um, there's a gentleman that uh, I'm, I'm going to say that I used to work with. But he was like, I'm going to hire people that look just like me. And I just feel like you're limiting them at that point because really you're just trying to hire good people to do the job right, not anything specifically to race or color or sexuality or anything like that. You need to have people that just do the good job like we're building a team based off of work ethic. I'm not trying to, I don't care if you're white, black, yellow, brown, whatever the case may be. If you're good work ethic and you can do the job, that's what I want on my team. And I feel like when the gentleman put the email out, I'm going to hire people that look just like me. It kind of set the tone to what you're trying to do. And I I don't necessarily agree with that strategy. I just, I wish you would have worded it differently. As, I'm going to hire people that work like me, like hardworking, good work ethical people. I don't care what color you are. And just didn't it didn't sit right with me. Yeah. And I think the more you bring up race, it's never gonna go away. No. And it it shouldn't be that the more we use these things as
0: you know, Boone talked about that. The more we use these things as divisive identifiers. That's the key. That's where the problem starts. And that's steeped in survival, right? When we were all living in tribes and we were protecting resources, it was our tribe versus the tribe next door because we didn't want them coming over and getting our land and our resources and stealing that because we wouldn't be able to survive. There is a certain level of human instinct involved in this. That's what makes it a challenge. Because your natural biological instinct, you're trying to do something that's going counter to that. You're trying to change that. You're trying to move into a different direction. Right. But we're responsible. We know better now. We don't need that. I'm not competing against for resources against somebody just because they're a different skin color
1: than me. Well, it goes back to what you're saying too. Forget about the past. Let's live live in the present and look forward to the future. Oh yeah, and you know we're all on the same team, guys.
0: And and I got in another ayahuasca put together as well that really plays into this is. When you realize, you know, coming back to that full circle of realizing that there's a source, right? Uh, And let's just call it the source. That's the easiest thing for, I think, people to consume. There is a source energy. And then we are all just fragments of the source, right? We're tiny, minuscule little fragments of the overall source. But so is everything else, Mm -hmm. you know, plants, animals, all the elements, everything that's out there. Everything that exists is just a fragment of that root source. Well, then you realize when you make that statement, if you really reflect on that, my source energy, well, my soul, so to speak, right, whatever you want to call that, is part of the source, which means your soul energy is part of the source, which means that I am you and you are me. And we are part of the source. Well, that goes for every human being on the planet. When you look at the world that way, then you realize, okay, well, that changes how I look at other people. Because if you are me, and I am you, and we are the source, then, buddy, I have to love you just like
1: I love myself. Regardless of cover, our color, race, religion, everything.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it gets rid of all that. You realize that that source energy, that spark of conscious thought, that's the source. Our ability to have conscious thought, our self-awareness, the ability to think and interact and do what we are doing right now, that
1: is divinity. Right? Isn't that cool? I just figured out how to end racism. Let's have a clinic, an ayahuasca clinic specifically only for racists. Oh Lord! <laughs> Surprised. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I think what's <laughs> y- you know what's really cool about ayahuasca, and I d- I definitely want to talk on that because I know you're biting at the bit to ask me all the ayahuasca questions. So I we am. might as well just segue into that. Poor audience is like listening to us babble over here. Um, ayahuasca. So I-, I went down south for my first ayahuasca experience, and. Uh, it was three days at night one night two night three and then i went with a small group of people there was 13 people in our circle and then uh went down there we had a shaman and uh it was one it was a fantastic experience it was hands down the best experience of my life um but what i will say i've been struggling with figuring out like how in the hell am i going to communicate like what happened to me <laughs> over three days on a podcast to a bunch of listeners who may or may not have ever done ayahuasca and then also to do this in a mass consumable way because the teachings of ayahuasca are very individual okay but what i have realized and and so i went back down south this last week and i decided to be a helper at a circle and uh i am gonna try to be as steeped into this community as i can get because i really believe in the medicine and One of the things that uh, I'm starting to realize, the more people that I meet that have went through ayahuasca, the more people I listen to that have done ayahuasca, is get rid of all the individual experience, and what you have at the end of this is a root cause, right? You have this, um, you have, maybe not root cause, but you have a certain level of foundational truths. When you go through your ayahuasca experience, you're going to deal with yourself. What ayahuasca teaches you to do is to become your true self, to be the most authentic version of you that you can be. That is really the key here. You go, you take that plant medicine, and that plant medicine is aligned to help you find your true self, whatever that is, so that you can be the truest, most authentic version of who you are right? This is why it's a personal development. Well, your path and your experience necessary for you to be able to get that true self is going to be very individual to you. So because this is an individual experience, the one thing that I would like to, to, to put out there is that the medicine is smart. The source is a consciousness, so just if our self-consciousness of our self-awareness is the source then the source is also intelligent so when this medicine teaches you it teaches you in a very individual specific way that individual experiences may vary it may give you lessons from a perspective or from an angle that's different than mine but what's cool about it is we're all getting the same lesson the foundational fundamental truth is the same it's one of the things that I realized when it came to like, religion is, and if you look at religions all across the world, they're very similar. If you look at the base core of religion, that there's a source, that our job is to be good humans, that we all need to try to be better than, than we were yesterday, that, you know, we have a responsibility and a stewardship to the planet, to the animals, to everyone else, um, all of these things, to be kind, to be generous, to be loving— all of these things are core truths, all religions. It doesn't matter which one you're on. So that's kind of what ayahuasca teaches you as well. That core truth is the same. If somebody needs to find that through Christianity, that's fine. Now, there are some dogmatic things that come along with that religion that I believe were added by man for the purposes of control and things like that, that they can cause division, that can cause other things. Well, that's not okay. But if somebody is just using their religion, their Christianity, their, their, their um, you know, Muslim beliefs or, or Buddhist beliefs to come back to that core and that's how they're finding that connection, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Why would you argue that they're wrong? They're essentially doing the same thing. And so ayahuasca is very much that way. It's everybody has an individual experience, but everybody leads with the same core lessons. And that core lesson that you're going to leave with is that you are connected to the source, that you're part of that source, that you're responsible, that you have stewardship over the earth, that you have stewardship over the animals and, and, and people, and that you should love each other the way that you love yourselves, right? There are so many lessons that are just, it's about unity. It's about being one. It's about being family. And... When you wake up and you realize that the world is that way, it doesn't really matter how much detail you put on top of that or below that. That's the core truth, and that's what people leave with. Yes, some people will see, you know, wells of souls. Other people will see ruins and colors. Other people will go on certain experiences, but they're all leaving with the same lessons. The same lessons are those fundamental truths, and they're leaving with how to be the best authentic version of their self. What trauma did you have to deal with? What did you have to work through? What lesson did you have to learn? What did you have to see? And that's what you come away with. And for me, like I said, it was the most positive experience of my life.
1: That's awesome. So, I since since you've been back, and honestly, since the hot ceremony, I have I have told so many people about that and there's two one for sure, two for sure actually, and one maybe that I feel that would benefit a lot from Hoppe. Um, one's already asked me how much I'm in, if I'm welcome. And another one um, is actually my, uh, my mother-in-law. Um, she is a, uh, wow. she is a uh, <clears throat> director of oncology. So she is around cancer every day. Unfortunately with cancer comes death and she has hard days, you know, and you can see it in her eyes and she's very in touch third eye wise and very spiritual, I think she would benefit a lot because she carries so much weight on her shoulders that if she got a 10th of the good that I got from it, it would be so much, so much greater than what I can even explain. Like she's someone who I'd like to see do hape.
0: Well, I think the reason why all of these plant medicines work is because they're all working with the same thing. I agree. And You know, I think the Hoppe is a great introductory into the world of alternative medicine therapy um, because being tobacco, it's a very, very powerful tobacco. And with the combination of cannabis, which is a minor psychedelic itself, then you can get yourself into that space, that internal deep meditative space where you are connecting, that third eye, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Then you have more powerful things like psilocybin, mdma you have ways to kind of get there and then at the top of that threshold you have the ayahuasca you have the yahe and yahe is supposed to be even more powerful than ayahuasca and in fact uh, the group down in Colombia, that is what they do they do three nights of ayahuasca and then on the fourth night they do yahe which is like supposed to be ayahuasca and crack i can't even imagine but ayahuasca is such a powerful psychedelic that it lasts in your system for weeks afterward. And, you know, up to two weeks afterwards, you can feel your brain changing. That's the biggest thing that that I took away from that was I could feel my brain change, actually. Like the neural connections and the things that were formed during my experiences, I could feel them physically changing like i had growing pains in my head for days afterward and sometimes you know faint pains here and there over weeks and then when i started to reintroduce cannabis uh, obviously that psychedelic from the ayahuasca is still in my system so when i reintroduced uh, cannabis being a mild psychedelic It really intensified my highs. It really intensified my connection, which further allowed me to set my intentions and solidify those connections even more. And I could feel that change then. So I know that my brain is actually different. I know that it's created new neural pathways. I know that it's created new ways of thinking, new changes. Because one of the lessons that was taught to me during the experience, and I took it to a really ridiculous level during my experience, but as I came out of the experience and I realized that the, uh, the, the fundamental groundwork limitations of it is, in order to create new, you have to forget, right? So uh, think about it like this. This would be the best example that I can give to it. If I said that me and you had the opportunity to create a completely different world tomorrow and we were going to wake up tomorrow and me and you were going to be completely different humans and we were going to be in a different environment and we we're going to have everything that we ever wanted or whatever the case may be. Then the first thing is, it's like, oh my goodness, everybody else would be so shocked. Well, no, we're not really. Because once we make that change, nobody else would know. They would forget. It wouldn't have existed. Once that change happened and we changed everyone else around them and all, all the other little ripple effects that come with that, nobody would actually know the change ever occurred but you. So the only way to create real change is to forget. You have to forget. You have to forget those old ways of being. You have to forget those old ways of thinking, those old ways of acting. You have to forget those old behaviors. And when you forget, you can create new. And that's what ayahuasca did for me. A lot of the things, those thoughts that brought me into cyclical depression, those things that made me want to kill myself. Well, one, it taught me that a lot of that thinking was wrong because a lot of that was an existential crisis. A lot of that was... I didn't feel like there was a purpose to living. I didn't feel like there was a reason to be on this planet. Like, I didn't choose to poof myself into existence. Well, and then Ayahuasca was like, oh, yeah, you did. Boom. Here you go. And I was like, oh, well, shit. Well, there goes that existential crisis. Oh, by the way, there's a source. Oh, okay. Can't really argue that anymore. That sounds pretty fucking solidified. But then it taught me to forget those other things. That's where that materialism came in. That's where that jealousy and competition and all these other things came in. Because that's the one thing that it ridded for me was, was jealousy completely. If, if I'm part of the source and you're part of the source and we are the source, then I don't need to be rich in this experience. See, I was uniquely created in this experience to be exactly what I am. I don't need to be taller. Don't need to be shorter. Don't need to be darker. Don't need to be man, woman. I don't need to be anything. I need to be me. This is my job. My job is to be who I was created to be and to be the best, most authentic version of that and to live in this experience with as much presence as possible so that my reflection to the source is where it needs to be, right? Well, then you have the same responsibility. And when I realize that, also because of that because that's my job, that's my sharing. Then I also realize that whatever limitations I have like materialism and things like that like I don't need to be rich. You could be rich and if you're rich and you're part of the source and I'm part of the source then I'm rich through you. I don't need a Porsche because if somebody else out there drives a Porsche ipso facto in a way I so am I. It'd be nice if I could drive one too, but that's it. it just becomes a nice thing. it doesn't become a necessity doesn't become something that I need to substantiate my existence because my existence is already substantiated. I already have purpose. I already have a reason for being here. Now I can manifest and create my future opportunities and I can create my future goings. Maybe one day I'll be able to own a Porsche. Who knows? But I'm going to stop worrying about it. I'm going to stop being jealous over it and coveting over it. If that's not my plot in life, then that's not my plot in life. It's up to me to make those changes. So the manifest destiny, the manifest creation is in what I can pursue. If I feel like that needs to be part of my future, then sure, I can pursue that. But you should not get to a space to where it consumes you. It shouldn't be all or nothing. It's just a material object. The home that you live in, the whatever, like I live in a what I think is a pretty beautiful home, but... I also know that it's nothing compared to a lot of people's homes. And I also know that it's way better than a lot of people's homes too. So I'm just grateful that I get this one. If I can get a better one in the future, great. If I have to downsize, great. It doesn't define who I am. It doesn't define my existence. I'm not a better person because I own this home. I'm a better person because I put in the work. Because I work on me, the things that matter The internal shit The being a good person The protecting home The raising my kids That's the stuff that matters All of this material junk that's in your life How much money you have in the bank What type of home you live in What type of cars you drive This person has this, this person has that And you're jealous and you're coveting And you're looking around you And you're consuming yourself With all of this angst for what? For what? It wasn't meant for you. It's not your experience. Live yours. Stop worrying about everybody else's. See? Fundamental truths. Things that we have all known our whole life, but we didn't have the right frame of reference for. We've been hearing a lot of this stuff our whole life. Love your neighbor, right? Do unto others as you'd have them doing to you. Be kind. We have the secrets to life right in front of us. Just be, do better. They're all there all the time. We just don't have any applicable frame of reference for them. We don't understand what they actually mean. So nobody knows how to fucking apply it. They get stuck in this matrix and they get stuck in the societal view and they get stuck with all this bullshit that's collateral. Well, you need to have a bigger car. You need to have a bigger house. You need to own this. You need to wear these clothes. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to get this degree. You need to fucking do all this other shit. For what? You don't need anything. You need to be. You need to find out who your true self is. You need to find out what is the most authentic version of you that you can possibly fucking be, what your purpose is, and then you need to go do that. That's what you need to do. Everything else is just bonus. Maybe in doing that, you'll own a bigger house. Maybe you'll own a bigger car. Maybe you'll have millions of dollars of money. Who fucking knows? That could, whatever your path you choose, great. But if you need those things to justify your existence... Well, no wonder I wanted to blow my brains out. Well fuck, who wouldn't? Because they're almost damn near unattainable. The gap between the rich and the poor is insane. The average American makes fifty eight thousand dollars a year as a family. As a family. What you don't even start even getting close to the one percent until you make two point five million a year? Is that even a that's that's a that's a bridge. How do we gap that? Right? How do you build a bridge big enough to fill that fucking gap? For most people, it's not even possible. But you got people out there that are like, well, you know, that rich celebrity over there, they just bought a $50,000 dinner. They just spent on dinner what the average person makes a year working 60 hours a week. A family. Right? And then you're going to tell them that you can't be happy unless they can live like this person over here? Yeah, fucking, what's I get so mad at TV? You get on a, a television show and you look at a television show and they show you what do they show you? They show you a poor person. You know, we joked about this when we were in Michigan. There's these row of houses on the other side down next to the lighthouse. And they're beautiful homes. And I was I laughed once and I I told Michelle, I said, You know, if this was a movie, that would be where the poor people live. <laughs> That'd be where like the person that works on the boats or like they have like the most demeaning job in the whole community. And they really they would just be living in that little house over there on the other side of the pier. And what you don't realize is that's like a one point three million dollar home. Right. But when you see it in the movies, it's just like, well, those are the poor people houses. The peasants. Yeah. You know? And it's like they they don't show anything real. It's like and, and nobody talks about that. That's that was another takeaway from ayahuasca that was beautiful was The authentic sharing, you know, and and I talked about that in the Monica podcast, so I'm not going to go back through that. But when people put down the walls, when people stop trying to have a facade, when you're able to sit there and say, I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm a shitbag because I do this. Look, I did this terrible thing to my kids and I'm being a terrible dad. And then four other people in the room start crying because... They're doing it too. <laughs> There's an acceptance there. And then you realize that like, wait a minute, we're all in this together. This is all a human experience that we're sharing. I'm not some terrible shitbag bag because i am a been a bad dad. I'm just a human who made some decisions that weren't the best. And so did this guy over here. And so did this guy over here. And so did that guy over here. So, instead of sitting there and defining myself by these things like I'm the only one, I can realize that, oh man, everybody is going through this too. Oh, these people over here they have money problems too. Oh, look, they're fighting with their spouse too. Oh, look, this person has got this problem, or this person has got that problem, but instead, what do we do we We Facebook it, we Instagram it, we put the best foot forward, we drive the nicest vehicles that we can drive. Right, you roll up in a neighborhood like mine, and what do you see? You see rows of you know $300,000 homes plus, right? That's the average market price in this area, which I know in a lot of parts of the country it wouldn't buy you an apartment, okay? But you see rows of $300,000 homes in, a, in an area where the average home price is about $130,000, okay? So this is more of an up end neighborhood. You see R- houses full of car of driveways with with cars that are all 50, 60, 70,000 cars. They're all newer, they're all lower mileage, they're all upper end cars, right? And then they have a $50,000 RV parked outside, or they got a $60,000 boat on the side of the house. And then you go into their house and it's ordained and it's whatever. Okay. Well, when you drive through that, if you're somebody who doesn't have those things and you see, like, oh shit, like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I can't afford any of this. Yeah, you know, if everybody was just to get rid of all the shit, you know what you would actually find? Well, you would find that probably the majority of these people are buried in crippling debt. They're buried in the debt up to their eyeballs and they probably can't even pay their bills. They they've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans. They've got $100,000 worth of car notes. They've got a $300,000 mortgage they can barely afford. They can't fucking afford to put food on the table. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. And if they do, they do it on credit cards. They all have $30,000 or more of credit card debt. And then, when you get inside of the home and you find out they have a terrible marriage, they fight all the time, they're shit to their kids, they're shit on this, they're shit to this, this person's got this problem, this person's got that problem, oh, by the way, there's drug addiction and alcoholism and everything else, well, you wouldn't be looking at the picture so rosy, would you? You wouldn't be driving through this neighborhood if you weren't living in that going, oh, my God, I wish I could be like these people, because nothing is as it seems, Nobody is really this way. And the ones that are, good for them. But that's the goal. We all should be. If we create a good home, if we create a good space, if we protect our environment, if we spend wisely and we don't consume ourselves with materialism and we just live within our means and we do our best and we set intentions and we move forward and we just learn to be, the world would be a better place. That's the enlightenment that I hope, comes to the world. And I think that that is the enlightenment that eventually we're going to see. And the more people that get plugged into plant medicine, the more people that that get into other areas, even if it isn't plant medicine, if they just get into other therapies and other groups or, or good positive churches or other spiritual groups and entities that bring them to that space, that's the awakening that we all need. That's the sense of purpose that we all need. We need to learn to unplug from this matrix bullshit. Get, like Boone said, with the 5G warfare, get all of this stuff out of our lives. Nobody needs it. Nobody needs it. This is just clutter. This is all things that are taking you out of your present. This is all things that are taking you away from your true self. These are all things that are just cluttering your fucking life. And they're blocking all of your senses, and they're numbing you, and they're dulling you. And then what do you do? And you're covering it with fucking coping mechanisms. You know, you're drinking, and you got the alcohol, and you got everything else going on, you know? And then you take up, then you do take up drugs. You take up cannabis, and you start doing it recreationally as a coping mechanism, which is the worst idea in the world. And you get into other hardcore drugs. You get hooked on opiates and all this other fucking shit. Like, no wonder the world is the way it is. This is the standard. And nobody is telling you different. And I haven't even touched on diet, which the fucking Western diet and hormone optimization and all the other shit that goes on to that. We got a whole world out there that's literally just getting fucking poisoned on a daily basis. They're looking over here at the guy smoking a cigarette going, Oh my God, you're going to kill yourself while they're eating a fucking donut and drinking a soda. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, did that really just come out of your mouth? Like... Oh, by the way, go take your prescription pills, too. That's you're doing great, buddy. I'm glad you don't smoke. <laughs> you're fucking killing yourself every day. But so we got poison bodies. We have poison minds. We've got a completely perverted environment. We have all of this corporate corporatization going on, where all these corporations just trying to sell people shit. And that's what people don't realize. That 99% of the shit that you see on a daily basis is just fucking marketing. Hundreds of years of perfected marketing by corporations that have more money than anything else on the planet that are just trying to take your money from you. Why do you think you suffer from materialism? Why do you think you have those thoughts? They have literally programmed you. Boone talked about that. They literally program the way that you think from the time you're a child. They literally teach you these things so that you believe these are your own thoughts so that you own them. What's the best, the first thing they teach you in management, how to get ownership, how to get alignment from your people. Well, if I give you an idea and I can make you think it's your own idea, but it's actually my idea because I wanted you to think that you're going to take ownership of that idea. And then you're going to go forward and you're going to be aligned with me and you're going to give it hundred percent because you believe in that you now have a stake in that idea. They're teaching that in management school. I'm teaching that to students all the time. That's just one concept. If you think about this on a corporatization level, from a marketing level, from consumerism, from government, to product, to food, to everything that's in our life, no, we live in a fucking matrix, dude. We live in a world full of misinformation all the way down to the churches because they've even found a way to do that to spirituality. They manipulated, it. they perverted it, they changed it. So now you've got mind, body, spirit. Your mind isn't right because it's fucked up by the matrix. Your body isn't right because it's fucked up by all the food and all the other bullshit and all the medicines and all this other stuff out there. And your spirit isn't right because it's fucked up by whatever religious group you decided to fucking get in bed with. And, And every one of them has their own agenda that has their own fucking matrix thing with it. So you have no holistic balance, there's no mind-body-spirit, there's no health, and you wonder why everybody is so fucked up. How could you not be? Seems like the writing's on the wall. Yeah, like, if, dude, if you're out there and you're listening, and you're like, man, my God, I'm such a fuck-up, and that thought goes through your head, like, just realize, how could you not be? It's impossible. I was. It wasn't until my eyes got opened and I started learning and it didn't happen overnight. It took years, years and years. And I would say not even just the last three, the last three years were the beginning of the transformation. But fuck, I started 15, 20 years ago. Little eye opener here, little eye opener there, little eye opener here, little eye opener there. And then eventually that led me to the space where the snowball got big enough that it started to get some fucking traction. And then the transformation starts, and that's the last three years of my life. And then there was ayahuasca. And that was like, boom. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, life change. You know, new human, tomorrow, done. But that's even the thing I would say about that is it's not for everyone. Not everybody needs it. Not everybody needs that medicine. It's for a lot of people. But I also think this is something that people have to be ready for. There's a lot of preparation and a lot of groundwork. I had mind and body going into this experience. What I didn't have was spirit. I had a good intellectual mind. I had a powerful health fit body. I understood nutrition. I've unplugged from the matrix in all of these ways right? I was able to separate some of my thinking, and I was able to separate my nutrition and my health, and I was able to get my body and my mind out of the matrix just enough, but I was still plugged in in little ways here and there. Like I said, materialism and other things. But my spirit, I was completely unplugged spiritually, even though I was starting to get a little bit of a base and I was opening my mind to the idea there might be some more to this. Father Mark's conversations kind of hit home a few times. Like I was considering things, but still pretty much an atheist then the ayahuasca, I it found me. I didn't find it. I had searched for it, wanting it. I didn't know where it was going to come from. And then it found me. And when it did, the medicine worked and I went into the experience and I got from it what I want. But I will also say that I think that if you are someone who hasn't done the proper groundwork, ayahuasca is not going to be a good thing. Because You don't have enough preparation to get that healing that you're looking for. It takes a little bit of prep work. I think that's what's beautiful what Operation Purify and the Savage Encounters are doing. There's 30 days of prep work to go in before you can even go there. Then you're vetted and you're tested and they're making sure that you're the right people for this. Those indigenous cultures were raising people their whole lives to prepare them for that ceremony at a coming of age warriors were prepared to go into that ceremony. They were using these ceremonies before they went to war, after they went to war. They were using for these for the men and the leaders of the, of the tribe, for the women elders of the tribe. They were using these for very specific purposes, which means that all of the stuff that goes around it was just as important. It was just that spiritual connection. That plant medicine opens that third eye and brings you into that space and gives you that connection that you're missing. It shows you the things that you just can't quite get together on your own. Those little last few pieces. And then when you're somebody who's done the prep work and you get to that space, it is life-changing. But, you know, if you're not in that space, I was at a that, that circle that I went to and I went south this weekend. Um, I, I, there was one person there that I could tell you was not prepped for that. And I watched that experience and it was not a good experience. It was not a good experience. She didn't get anything from that experience, and it was terrible. You, you can't fight the medicine. And, you know, And I, I knew the woman was in trouble right away as I uh, – she had got up from the circle, and she went outside. And uh, I'm a helper, so I'm kind of like a security guard. I'm making sure people don't run off because they're on hardcore psychedelics. Like, they could leave. <laughs> so, you know, you have to kind of, like, monitor them a little bit, like, make sure. And so I go outside, and the the woman is sitting out there, and she's having a terrible time. And, uh, I, she said, I'm not going to go back inside. I said, well, you really need to go back inside. That's where the work's done. And she goes, no, I'm not going back in there. And then she started to like have a panic attack and she's like, my head's hurting and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, first off, yeah, your head's going to hurt. It's a psychedelic. That's literally changing your brain. It's going to hurt there was a certain amount of mental preparation, just like you should have researched this a little bit before going into it. Like, you know, if you're going to do a hardcore psychedelic, you should like see what the physical effects are on the body and what the science is behind it and what it's actually doing. So that when you have a little pain in your head, you don't freak the fuck out about it. You like understand like, Oh, this is normal. Right? So what she did is she had no mental preparation for that. She didn't understand it. And so she freaked out and then she started have a panic attack. And then I told her, I said, hey, you know, you really need to focus on your breathing. You need to breathe. You need to focus on your breathing. You need to relax. You need to find your center. You need to find a little bit of balance and rest. And I said, you need to get yourself back inside. And immediately she, I can't, I can't focus on my breathing. I can't focus on my breathing. My head hurts. I'm having a panic attack. And I realized in that moment, that's why you're where you're at. That's why you're where you're at in life too. Because all you can think about is why you can't do it. Somebody just came up to you and they gave you the gift to get you out of this terrible thing that you're going through. I just told her exactly what she needed to do to feel better. Here's the water. All you got to do is drink it. And yet, she was one of those humans for whatever reason. All she wanted to do is tell me why she couldn't. I can't breathe because I'm having a panic attack. Well, you're not dying right now, so apparently you're still breathing. You have the ability to physically breathe. What you lack is the ability to have the capacity to do it. The mental capacity to do it. Probably never meditated. Didn't know how to center herself. Didn't know how to look inside. Didn't know how to calm and relax herself. There was preparation necessary. She didn't have the science behind it. She didn't understand what psychedelics do to your body and how they function. So she freaked out. That person got nothing from that experience. I watched her fight the medicine for hours and hours and hours, and it was a tremendously terrible experience for her. Hmm. And it was sad because that could have been a great thing, but when somebody doesn't allow themselves to move into it, when they don't realize that that is the thing that that statement right there. And how many people do you meet like that? How many people do you meet that, as soon as you tell them something, they just tell you why they can't do it? diet is the greatest one. How many people do I have? You know that that is the one thing. And this is going to sound like an arrogant statement, and it's not meant to be arrogant. I don't feel like I'm better than or anything like that, I promise. But I do look a certain way. I am fit. I have visible abs. I'm in my 40s. I would say for most 40-year-old guys, I'm pretty fit for being in my 40s. And I have people that comment on that regularly. Oh, man, I wish I looked like you. Man, I wish I could do this. Man, I wish I could do that. I want Man, I want to be like you. And then I'll start telling you, well, what's your diet like? Mom? am carnivore only. Oh, man, that's got to be expensive. I can't afford that. Oh, yeah, what do you eat? Well, I eat meat, and I eat cheeses, and I have limited amounts of dairy product, and, you know, I drink coffee with heavy cream, and I don't drink soda, and all this other stuff. And they're like, oh, well, that doesn't sound like enough variety for me. I don't think I can do that. <sighs> I just, I don't think I could eat that limited. Okay, well, you just asked me how to be like me. And I just told you what I do to be like me. And then the first words out of your mouth is, I can't do that? Well, that's why you don't look like me. That's why you're never going to. Same thing Arnold Schwarzenegger said when that guy came up to him and he said, oh, man, I would never want to look like you. And Arnold Schwarzenegger said, don't worry worry about it, you won't. Yep,
1: don't worry, you won't.
0: You won't. Not going to be your problem. And that mentality is destroying people's lives. That's the one thing I've always loved about you, is you never see an obstacle. You just see opportunity. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Whenever I come up to you and I'm like freaking out, and I'm like, oh my God, this has went wrong, and that has went wrong, and this has went wrong. You always say the same thing. What went right? Where's the door? There's got to be a way around it. And that's why, you know, you've always been that guy. Like I said, you're the only person I know that can fall into a mud pit with a white suit on and leave clean like every fucking time (laughs) it's a gift (laughs) but the the secret is is you're looking for you're looking for the solution you're not looking for the problems everybody else is looking at the problems why they can't do what they can't do
1: can't do all that shit yeah it doesn't do you any good change the problem just find the solution just move forward if
0: one door closes go find another door to open if that door closes, go find another one to open. How many times have you watched me jump from opportunity to, opportunity to 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 opportunity? Looking for doors. If I would have stopped and said every time that I closed a door, a door got shut in my face, that that was like, oh, fuck it. Guess I can't be done. Wouldn't have went anywhere. Nothing would ever happen that way. I lived a lot of my life that way. I used to give that analogy when I was doing the motivational speaking. Remember, I talked about life like a uh, a hallway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then when you're young, and I was so excited There's about helping young people. A lot of doors. Because when you're young, it's just loaded with doors. When you were 18 years old and you were leaving high school, you have a hallway full of fucking doors. And you can kick any of those doors open, and literally the whole world is, a, is full of possibilities. And then I had this terrible analogy where I would talk about, as you get later in life, Eventually you get down to the road to where you only have one door. You're in a hallway full of no doors because you've got an education and a career and a family and you've steeped yourself into all this stuff. And then you got to the point to where you just have one door and then you need to really maximize those opportunities earlier in life so that you don't get stuck with that door. And I was teaching people this, how terrible was this that I was paid to give motivational speeches with that philosophy And then I realized 10 years later in my life that it couldn't be further, any further from the truth. The reality is there's opportunity every day. It's all around you. You just have to be ready for it. Your only job in life is to prepare yourself to be ready for opportunity. Because if you're not, then it doesn't matter if you get it or not. You're still going to fuck it up. So you just have to be ready. That's where all this self-work comes in. Why Why do we work on ourselves constantly, constantly, constantly? Because we all have hopes and dreams and visions. And I'm a visionary, so I am a fucking dreamer too. I've got huge dreams, huge visions, massive things that I want to do, massive things that I want to accomplish. Well, the key to all of that is me. I have to be ready for whatever those opportunities are. So if I don't get my shit together and I'm not putting all the work into making me the very best version that I could be, then how can I expect those opportunities to take me? How can I expect those doors to open? Even if they do open, even if I run through them, what's going to happen? I'm going to fail. You have to be ready to take those things in life, to prepare yourself to be in some ships. Not all crews are created equal. You know, no different than service in the military. Not all branches are created equal. Not all positions and jobs are created equal. There's something different about being an infantryman in the Marine versus being a supply sergeant in the Army. Doesn't mean one is better than the other, but you need to be a completely different type of human to excel at being a Marine infantryman. No different than being a Navy SEAL. I was a combat engineer. I was combat arms in the Army. I was not Delta. (laughs) I was not SEAL. I was not Marine Force Recon. I was not Special Forces. These are a different breed of human. They had better self-awareness than I did. They were prepared differently. They had an intestinal fortitude that I didn't possess. They had drive that I didn't have. It doesn't mean that I couldn't have done those things. It means that I wasn't prepared for those things at that moment in time in my life. And it still may not be. Some of those things are really hard. I don't think I can make it through SEAL training. Like, I'd probably quit. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Ring the bell. I'd just ring the bell. I'd be like, day one, I'd be like, hey, I showed up, ding, good for you. (laughs) They would lose me at the water. I'm telling you, have you seen that where they lay in the water and it's like 30 degree water or 40 degree water? Arm to arm and then wave after wave. No, dude, I'm such a bitch in the cold. I would I would completely die. That would be my breaker. <laughs> like that would just be it, man, I, I would I would be there like I'd feel hyperthermia coming on in about 30 seconds and I'd just be like, and we're done. <laughs> well, good experience. You know, but kudos to the people. but see, those people are ready. Yeah. The people that make it are the ones that are ready. They're the ones that have prepared themselves for what they wanted. There was somebody that wanted to be a seal. There was somebody that prepared themselves to be a seal and then they did it right. They got the mental fortitude, the physical fortitude, the spiritual fortitude. They had the what they needed to, to be in that position to excel. And that's all any of us should do. We just need to figure out what it is that we want, what it is that our purpose is, what it is that we're aligning ourselves for, what direction we're putting ourselves in, what it is that we hope to attain, and then we need to develop ourselves to be the type of person that, that is capable of excelling in those spaces. If you want to be a millionaire Then you need to educate yourself You need to learn a little bit about money <laughs> Right? You need to learn about business You need to learn about entrepreneurship You need to learn about the things that people that are in those positions have And that's how you achieve them
1: Start learning how to sell yourself That's where you're going to get there Right
0: Well, you know, there's a lot to that I mean, there's a lot to that, but it goes in everything yeah. You know? So, I don't know but uh,
1: Mike drop that shit, bro
0: Well, you know, I tried in a long rambling kind of sort of way. (laughs) What are we at on time, man? Two hours and three minutes. Oh, my goodness. Look at this poor audience. They're like, these guys are talking forever. It's okay. (laughs) I'll tell you what. We'll go ahead and wrap up for the day. We had a good chat. Man, I enjoy having you, brother. Good times, brother. Always. Oh, dude, it's nice sometimes just to be able to kick it into low gear and just relax just you and i everyone's
1: like that's fucking low gear <laughs> yeah like
0: you know but well, you know, it's not all the prep work that goes into like the guests no, everything else a lot of work goes into preparing the guest and getting everything ready and getting schedules aligned and getting people in seats and making that happen like Is is so much easier to do when it's just me and you. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) But we got a good week ahead of us. So I'll tell you what, if you guys are out there and you're still listening, one, I appreciate you guys very much. Two, this is a shout out to our listeners in France. So I was looking the other day, we apparently have 64 listeners in France, and we also have some in Belgium. Do me a favor, reach out to us and let us know who you are. Uh, you That's a really high viewership, and I don't know anybody in France. I know the people that are in Norway, I know some people around there, but uh, do me a favor. Why don't you reach out to us? I'd like to get to know you a little bit and uh, get to see what your experience is with the show and find out how you found about and are listening to The Stone Apes. But uh, go ahead and click subscribe if you haven't done that already, and then hit that notification bell so that you get notified when we drop future episodes. All All of our episodes are going to drop on Fridays by 420, uh, and that's just because we love weed and so should you. All right. A thank you to our sponsors. I want to give a big shout out to Malevolent Arts Studios over in Barnhart, Missouri. That is our man, Anthony Ferguson, over there. Look, if you're in the market for a new tattoo or piercing, this is your spot. This is a clean shop full of professionals that are going to educate you. They're kind, polite. They're friendly. uh, They're very experienced. The line work and saturation that Anthony does is next to none It's like no artist that I've ever seen Uh, If somebody can put a tattoo in your body That looks like a sticker and stays that way It is that man I highly recommend his artwork He's a talented, creative person And uh, just a wonderful human being So if you're looking for a new tattoo Why don't you reach out to Anthony and his group over there At Malevolent Art Tattoo Studio Send him a message Mention that you heard about him from the Stoned Apes podcast And you will get $50 off any booked appointment. Next up is Strategic Stitch. Strategic Stitch is our apparel partner. They do DTF, embroidery, and mobile laser engraving and other laser engraving services. If you guys are in the market for some Uh, gear if you're looking just to get some swag for the office or maybe for your employees or if you just want that custom shirt to be able to wear to that family reunion make sure that you reach out to strategic stitch their dtf technology which is their digital transfer print it wears better than screen printing it also dies into the shirt just like screen printing but it has the advantage of of only being able to be done in low quantity or high quantity so and unlike you know a lot of these places where they have minimum order requirements and you have to go Go and buy 50 shirts all at once. You can literally just order one or two offs or three offs from Strategic Stitch. They're perfect at fulfilling those. They're a great solution for the individual or for the small business owner. At the same time, because that technology is so easy and so efficient to do, if you needed 10,000 T-shirts for a corporate event, they're your people for that, too. They run the dropship program for us through the Stoned Apes. So if you're a business out there and you were looking to get set up with the dropship program, I highly recommend that. Uh, it allowed us to be able to get in a low entry cost. The, the, the designs are phenomenal. The quality of the product is phenomenal. Uh, I highly recommend that. If you're still listening out there, make sure you check out www.thestonedapespodcast.com. See our gear there, and uh, make sure you order you some. That would be amazing. All right, guys. For this episode, uh, it is the Reverend and the Captain again, and we appreciate all of you wonderful listeners out there. I can't believe so many of you take the time to listen to us. Hopefully you got some valuable information from this podcast today. But until next time, the Stoned Apes are out.